Should be some notes for First Kings here. If you need notes, raise your hand and or just go get them right there. Some notes back there. I already have one for Avalon and Autumn up here. First Kings. Who likes First Kings? Yeah. Anybody like the historical books? Samuel King, Joshua Judges. Yeah, I do. I do. I like every book, which I really like history. But also there's a lot of theology interwoven through there. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of bad examples, some good examples. And so let me open in prayer and we'll begin with First Kings. Lord, it's a wonderful morning to look at your word. It always is a great time to open the scriptures and, and let the scriptures teach us. Pray that we would learn some lessons from First Kings that we would uh, know the book better with this quick survey, that when we read through it, we would understand it and, and know why it's there and, and understand the different lessons. Help us to be uh, rightly interpreting and dividing the Word, exegeting it, interpreting it properly. I pray that you would give us this wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Amen. First Kings comes before Second Kings, after Second Samuel. Everybody got a handout? You want one? The title, we call it Kings, but in, in uh, First Kings, sorry, we call it First Kings, but in Hebrew, First and Second Kings are one book. Just like First and Second Samuel are one book, in the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. Probably got divided into two because one whole book wouldn't fit on a scroll. They got two scrolls. Hey, which kings are you grabbing? Grab the first one. Grab the second one. So by the time it gets translated into the Greek Septuagint, it's um, it's definitely a different book in the in the people who compose that Bible's minds. Now in the Septuagint, though, that's the LXX up here. In the Septuagint, it's Third Kingdoms. What's First Kingdoms? What we call First Samuel. Second Kingdoms, Second Samuel, Third Kingdoms, First Kings, Fourth Kingdoms, our Second Kings. It's interesting in their mind. It's about the kingdoms. It starts with Saul, and it's going to run all the way till they get taken into exile at the end of 2 Kings. The Vulgate, which is a, was officially the Roman Catholic, it might still be, I guess, but the, the original Latin translation, which came a little bit later, it's about the mid-300s, and has lasted even till today. Um, it's just called Third Kings. So not so much on kingdoms, but the, the focus there was on the kings themselves. What's the theme? Well, if we were just to give it in one short little sentence or phrase, it's a united and divided kingdom. Uh, Faithful is the united kingdom. Faithful, united we stand. The disobedient, divided we fall. So as long as they were faithful and united, they stood strong, they stood with the Lord. Once they were disobedient, they were divided, and they fell. So if we were to open that up a bit more, 1 Kings brings the kingdom from the height of its glory with Solomon to a sudden abyss of division and decline. First Kings records the division of the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. So what happened? What went wrong? We're going to look at that today. It went wrong with Solomon. He had everything. He had all the wisdom. He had all the wealth. You could say he had everything that a person would need to rule well and to make wise decisions, and he still fell into sin. Sometimes we think, if God will just give us, you know, more money, it wouldn't be so stressful. Maybe I'd be more holy if he took a little pressure off of me in these areas. Solomon had everything. 
just like Adam, really. I mean, Solomon had maybe some more physical stresses and sins than, of course, than Adam did in the garden, but Adam had everything. It was perfect, and he still chose to sin. So why is it here? So the theme is just kind of what the book overall is about. Why did God put it here? Why is it in the Bible? He wants us to know that the human monarchy, including even David's own house, failed to follow him. They failed to follow Yahweh. What was the result? Israel and Judah were taken from the land and fulfillment of God's word. He had prophesied this would happen. God already not only knew it would happen, but planned it all to happen to teach a lesson, to teach us a lesson in the New Testament, to teach them a lesson in the exile. The land is going to be not only divided, but taken away. We'll get there next week with 2 Kings. Disobedience. That's what led to all this. God is, God is serious about sin. Hopefully you've seen that in the Old Testament. From every book, from Genesis 3 all the way up till today, every book, what's, what's the problem? Sin. What's the answer? Jesus or, or God. You know, they didn't know the name Jesus yet, but God's, God's salvation, which will come in Christ. They were always looking to themselves. Even when everything was going right with David, what happened? We looked at this last week. He thought he would do what he wanted commit sexual immorality, commit adultery, and then kill her husband. And God said, because you love me, because you wanted to build a house for me, I still will bless you and you will have a descendant forever. Your kingdom will will be forever. But there's going to be consequences. A lot of consequences for David, right? His firstborn with Bathsheba died as a a newborn. Then uh, his son rebelled against him. His kingdom was torn from him. Then his kingdom was given back. But he had many struggles. Now Solomon is going to have everything. But that's, that's still just a man-made. Oh, God gave it to him. So it's not all man-made. But it's men running it. Well, men and women are going to sin. What's the solution? Follow God. Follow God. What kind of dates are we talking about here? Well, The first kings, the very first date, is going to be the death of David. So we're going to see in the beginning of the book, David's dead. David's dying. It passes to Solomon. The kingdom does. By the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, this is after they've all been taken into exile into Babylon. And Jehoiachin, the last living king of, is, of Judah, is, is able to come out of prison and he's able to at least eat and be with the other nobility there in Babylon. So when's it written though? Well, it's written after this last event mentioned, of course. So if 561 is the last event, that's our start date for writing. It's, this is a pretty narrow uh, writing date. Normally in the Old Testament books, we don't know when they were written. We can kind of narrow it down to a few hundred years, maybe. Here we're looking at less than 30 years uh, window. And then 538 would be the latest that these books could be written, First and Second Kings. That's the latest. So, so 561, let's go to the end of of 2nd Kings here. So turn in your Bible to the 2nd Kings 25. Very last thing recorded. Starting in verse 27. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile. So they've already been there 37 years. 
in the 20th month, on the 70th day of the month, the evil Merodach, that's quite a name, right? Evil Merodach, that's his name, king of Babylon. And the year that he became king, he released uh, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes. He had meals. He had an allowance. He had a daily portion. So that's the earliest that the book could have been written. Latest, 538. That's when they return from the exile. The exile is not mentioned at all in First or Second Kings. It would have been mentioned if they had already returned. I think the writer would have put it in the end here at Second Kings. So they haven't returned yet. So somebody, a prophet of God, we're not sure who. It could be various writers. You can suggest all kinds of writers, various prophets. A prophet of God here is writing down a record of all these kings and what led up to the fact that they are in exile. It's a lesson. Israel's in exile. Judah's in exile. And they need to read their history. They need to know their history. We often hear that we need to know our history as Americans. We need to know how our country started and what what has come after that. Because if you don't know history, you're doomed to what? Make the same mistakes, right? World history. We need to know world history because of that. Even more important, we need to know our biblical history. Israel needed to know their biblical history so they did not fall back into these sins. And the number one sin, guess what it's going to be? In First and Second Kings, the number one sin is going to be what? Immorality is up there. Higher than that, idolatry. Idolatry. Now, immorality went with that. It was accompanied by it, but uh, idolatry was the number one sin. It is the reason that they're in exile, and they have to learn their lesson so they're not going back into exile after their 70 years is up. Let's look at an outline here. Samuel and, uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings divide almost right in the middle often with these books. Um, we saw with Second with Samuel, we had David's rise and David's fall. Well, here we have the kingdoms united with Solomon, and then we're going to see that the kingdoms divided after Solomon. So chapters 1 through 11 are all about Solomon's reign. First, how he's established, then how he's uh, on the rise as far as wealth and wisdom. Everybody is recognizing him as this wonderful king. Even kings and queens from other lands are coming to meet this guy. Who is this guy that that the God of creation would bless? And then we get to chapter 11. We're going to see the failure of Solomon. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 1. Now King David was old, advanced in age. They covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So he's, he's not doing well with his circulation. He doesn't have long left. He's laying in bed all day. So his servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king. Let her attend the king, become his nurse. Let her lie in, uh, let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. Some people think there are some sexual connotations here. I don't think so. Um, he, he, he can't even get out of bed. This guy's not, not doing anything here. This is a nurse. This is a nurse to take care of him. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel. They found Abishag, the Shunammite, brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. Verse 5, Now uh, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted him, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? 
And he was also very handsome, and he was born after Absalom. So another son of David who suddenly decided he's going to be king. And then skip down to verse 11. Then Nathan, Nathan's the prophet that came and, and rebuked David for his sin. Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that uh, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now, come, please, let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Because if Adonijah becomes king, he's going to kill Bathsheba. He's going to kill Solomon. He might kill all the brothers, all the, the sons of David. So now, please, let me give you counsel, he says. Go at once to King David. Say to him, Have you not, my, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? So David had already said Solomon was going to be king. Not because Solomon's the oldest, but because God had chosen Solomon to rule. David uh, is following that. Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm my words. So she goes, she tells the king that Nathan comes in and he, he confirms what's being said. So Solomon is quickly crowned king. Uh, the priest is involved. Zadok is anointed, verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. So David rode in on his mule. Who else rides in on a donkey? Jesus rides in on a donkey. Why? Because that's what kings did. When they're crowned king, they ride in, they get anointed. So this is a symbol before all the people that Solomon is going to be the next king. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. So they pour oil. That's a symbol of God's blessing, of God's spirit, a symbol that this is God's king. Then they blew the trumpet. All the people said, Long live Solomon. All the people went up after him. People were playing on flutes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at their noise. So David in chapter 2, he speaks to Solomon. He gives him wisdom. And then at the end of chapter 2, Adonijah is executed. Um, he was not at all happy about that. And uh, he was not happy about Solomon becoming king and still stirring up trouble. Solomon has him executed. Joab is executed. Shimei, the guy who threw rocks and was cursing David uh, when David had to leave the city. When Absalom was ruler, is executed. So Solomon's cleaning house here in chapter 2. Now we see his rise start in chapter 3. It's consolidated. He makes sure that everyone is in support of him. Look at uh, 3.6. We see his prayer, his prayer to God. He says, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So Solomon remembers the Davidic covenant. And Solomon thinks, I'm a part of this Davidic covenant. In a sense, he is. Verse 7, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. He's not actually a little little child, but he's a young man. He hasn't had a long life. He hasn't had a lot of experience. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. 
So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? So Solomon's going to be granted wisdom, but it's not like he's, he's wise and that he knows everything. Sometimes we think, oh, he's the wisest man who ever lived. Yes, but main, the main issue for his wisdom was to judge between good and evil, to be a righteous king for his people. To know when somebody was lying to him. To be able to discern whenever people were being evil. So it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life. That's what most people would say. Let me live 120 years. Nor have you asked riches. He didn't ask for that. Nor have you asked for the life of your enemies but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. He wants to know. He wants to be righteous, and he wants to deal righteously with his people. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you uh, a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. This is not an eternal covenant. He's not saying, I will make sure that you're blessed your whole life and all your descendants after you. That was what was given to David. Solomon doesn't have that. Solomon's is conditional, isn't it? It's conditional. It's not even really a covenant. It's just a conditional blessing. I'll give you riches. I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you authority. But... Only if you walk in my ways, only if you keep my statutes, only if you keep my commandments. Just like your father David did. David, David in general, loved the Lord with all his heart. In general, David followed God. Did he sin along the way? He did. But God is gracious. And in David's heart, David wanted to follow uh, God. So Solomon wisely judges. Remember the, the baby, two prostitutes, they're fighting over the child. And, uh, you know, he says, well, fine, just, just cut the baby in half. And then, you know, the, the real mother shows herself and the other one doesn't care. The, the fake mother doesn't care. So that was an example of his wisdom. Even the queen of Sheba wants to come and see this wise and wealthy king. Hiram, the king of Tyre, is befriends uh, Solomon. He makes an alliance. And then in chapter 6, we get the temple built. This is a great accomplishment for the nation. It was all in God's plan. David had all the materials ready. Solomon just had to make sure the workers were there and have it built. Follow the plans that God had already given. It's going to be designed around the tabernacle. We'll look at a, an image. I think I've got... There it is. It's going to be designed around the tabernacle that was in the desert with them. But it's going to be bigger. It's going to have all gold inside. It's going to be stone on the outside, not animal skins like the tabernacle was. It's going to have these bronze items around and inside. So it's either bronze or gold. The closer you get to the presence of God, the more gold there is. And so Solomon builds this mighty structure. And uh, 6.14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. Then he built the walls of the house on the inside, the boards of cedar, Um, it goes through and tells you exactly what he's doing. It gives out all the measurements in cubits. 
Verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month. So it tells you when this started, when this foundation was laid. And uh, so he was seven years in building it. It took seven years to build this. They've got to cut the stones. They've got to fit them just right. In the sermon, I'll talk today how they didn't have any mortar. Or they didn't use mortar back then. You couldn't just cut a stone and throw it up there and then make sure it fits with the mortar around it. You had to make sure each stone set perfectly on the other and wasn't going to slip off. And they found some of these stones still today. Uh, there, there's a big pile of them because the temple, well, this is actually Solomon's temple. The next temple, Herod's temple, is going to have these huge stones that weigh one to two tons. And it's very, very likely that some of these stones in this temple would be that large as well. And they're going to put all this gold. They've got to melt it down and make all the, the uh, candles, the showbread. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant's already made. And then these bronze dishes, you see right here. And then there's some also lined up over here. So if you, I don't know if you can see the little schematic up here, right here. These were to wash the animal parts after they had cut up the sacrifice. So you bring your sacrifice to the gate if you're sacrificing for your family. And uh, the priest is going to help you cut it up. Or some, some of the sacrifices, the priest will cut it up, keep a portion. And the parts that are going to be burned, the first they have to be washed. So they're going to be washed in there. And then the big one was called the bronze sea, or just the sea. That was for the priest to be cleansed. They have to get in there before they can do the sacrifices. They have to be cleansed. They have to go through this purification process to signify that they're sinners as well. So yes, they're priests. Yes, they're designated to officiate at the temple and do these sacrifices, but they have to go through this purification to show that they're sinners and they need cleansing. Then they cleanse the animal parts to burn on the altar here, a large altar. And then that's where you get the pleasing aroma to the Lord. You put the best pieces there. The priest would keep a chunk. And then the family that was sacrificing would often get a piece as well. So all those sacrifices we went through when we did Leviticus. I think it's very interesting, and this is from the ESV Study Bible. I wonder if there was actually some of these images and things in here. I mean, there must have been. I think these are these these uh, winged creatures here are representing cherubim. There were cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, but I'm not sure anywhere in the Bible where it describes these large golden statues on each side. That might come from other sources like Josephus. But can you imagine what it would have been like to go up to the temple in those days? And then if you were a priest, you could go into that first section. All the priests could go in there at different times to do the, the showbread and such to see all of that gold. And then once a year, the high priest going into the very back there, the Holy of Holies, and to be in the presence of God. Well, Solomon built this. Um, he was praised. He, he prayed to the Lord um, he asked the Lord's blessing on the temple and on his kingdom. And God gave it to him. Solomon brought the ark up in chapter 8. The prayer of dedication is good. I'll just read a portion here in 8.22. Go to 8.22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart, 
who've kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. So he knows about David's promise, or God's promise to David, the Davidic covenant. And he's just praying that God will fulfill that. You know, he's, he's thanking the Lord for that, thanking the Lord for all that he's done for David and David's household. And he says, let that continue. Solomon got to grow up. He got to see his father operate. He got to see his father be king and rule over the nation with a heart that loved God. And so he's just asking that God would continue that. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Is God actually going to dwell in this temple with us? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I've built. So even though God's presence will be in the temple, it's not like God can be contained in a temple. God, God is everywhere. And so God's going to show a special presence there in the Holy of Holies and be with his people and dwell with them. But Solomon even recognized you can't contain God in a temple. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry, to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. And then he goes on to ask for blessings upon the nation. Various things happen. Uh, it's a long prayer. I encourage you to read it. So the kingdom gets divided because of what we're going to read in a moment in chapter 11. And then David's son can't hold the kingdom together. This is God's punishment. God had said this would happen. And the son is very prideful. Rehoboam is very prideful. And uh, he will not lower the taxes like the people ask. So it splits. Ten tribes go with the northern one. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern will be called Judah. Why Judah? Because it's the major tribe in the south. There's only Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin, tiny little tribe. Judah, big tribe. All the kings come from Judah. Solomon, David. So it becomes Judah. So there's going to be a line of kings now. Starting in Israel. Continuing on until they're taken away by the Assyrians. There's going to be a line of kings in Judah. This is going to be David's line. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and on and on, until they're taken to Babylon. So Judah goes to Babylon. Israel, before Judah goes to Babylon, Israel is taken away by Assyria. And then we end with this last section, King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. We're introduced to Elijah. We get to see some of his ministry it will continue on into Second Kings as well. So here's where, this one here on your left, that is Solomon's reign. So Solomon had the biggest kingdom. David took quite a bit, and then through other political, military maneuvers, Solomon was able to take this top part here, Hamath. And uh, it's in the gray because he didn't actually rule directly over it, but it was a client kingdom. So that's quite large. That's almost, I say almost, what God promised Abraham. Not quite, but we'll come to that with an interpretive issue. But it's almost there. 
Not quite there, though. So he had the largest extent of any king of God's people. After it's divided, though, here's what we end up with. We end up with Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Notice that that Solomon had even finally taken care of the Philistines there, hadn't he? You remember? Saul could not, you know, even back to, to Joshua and Judges, they could not get rid of the Philistines. They hung out against the coast in their cities there, even in, in Judges, 1 Samuel. Finally, David fights them in 2 Samuel. They're encompassed by Saul's day. But when the kingdom splits, look what happened. Philistines rebel. They're still not dead. They're still there living in the land. They rebel, take their own little plot of land back. Ammon takes their land back. Moab gets theirs back, but they serve, end up serving Israel. And then, of course, Edom gets their kingdom back as well. So what Solomon once had all control there just ends up breaking off as the kingdom splits up into all these pieces. All because of his sin. All because of his sin. It didn't happen in his day, but it happened in his son's day. I don't know if you can see this one. The colors are a little weird. And the writing is small. This is from the ESV Study Bible as well. I like it because blue are the good kings. All the kings of Israel. All the kings of Judah. Can you, you guys see that? Blue are the good kings. One, two, three, four. Four out of... I don't know how many are there. 30? Four are good. What do you notice on your left side there? There's no blue, right? The northern kingdom never had a good and godly king. The main reason? Because as soon as it started, they set up their own places of worship. They set up their own idols. And it continued like that. They had one who was mixed. Brown is mixed. Because some good, some bad. Jehu. Jehu destroyed many of the um, false places of worship, but he also did many sinful things. Red, bad king. Did not care what the Lord said. Did whatever they wanted. Worshipped idols. Set up more idols. Persecuted God's people. But even in the south, it's not like they were perfect either. They had many bad kings as well. And some who did both good and bad. Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, and uh, Jotham. Good ones, Asa and Jehoshaphat early on, later Hezekiah and Josiah. So a lot of kids, well, not today, but Josiah, I guess, is still popular. I don't know that I've met anybody named Jehoshaphat, but in history, these have been uh, popular children's names, some of these. I have met a Jotham from another country. I haven't met any Ahab, but, you know, I was uh, when I was in chiropractic school, there was a lot of Mormons there. And they always had interesting names from the Bible. They had a kid, one of the Mormon families had a kid named Ammon from the Ammonites. So that is not a good biblical name. You don't choose the, that's like calling your kid Philistine. So not many good kings. What's going on here? Why, why, why don't you think there are many good kings? Many who love God. What are some reasons you might throw out? Sinful? There, there's no perfect king but the one coming they've lost their direction why yeah they weren't focused on the lord they were focused instead on themselves and they turned to what false gods 
we could say demons. They, they didn't think they were turning to demons. They just thought these are other gods in the land that the Canaanites used to worship. Hey, God's not listening to us. Let's turn to them. But we know that those are demons. They're trying to go another way around to get what they want since they can't go and get it from God. Yeah, especially the northern kingdom. Yeah, they married. And Solomon Solomon's going to be the, the bad example. They married pagan wives, unbelievers. They married unbelievers, and uh, that turned their hearts. These are key chapters where I looked at chapter 1. Solomon's appointed king. 2, David dies, and Solomon secures his kingship. 3, Solomon chooses wisdom and wisely judges. Then Solomon is dedicating the temple by chapter 8. God promises Solomon certain blessings and warns him again. And chapter 11, let's read most of that. We don't have to get very far to figure out what happened here. 11.1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. It wasn't just that they were foreign. That's not why God said don't marry them to Israel. Why, Why did he say that? Because they worship another God. It's the same thing in the New Testament. Don't be unequally yoked. If you are a believer unmarried and you're looking to get married, you don't just go down to the local, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses to find a wife. You're supposed to marry in the faith. Well, that was a law in Israel too. You're supposed to, and and not just in the faith there, but in actual ethnic Israel. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So uh, that was his first wife, at least mentioned in the text here. Pharaoh, he, he married her for an alliance with Egypt. Look at these Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. You shouldn't live among them. They shouldn't live among you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. God knows what's going to happen. They're going to turn away and they're going to follow the false gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He loved these foreign women who had a worship of false god. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. Concubine is still a type of wife. We often think it's not. It's a non-noble woman that the king would want to marry and have sex with, but she wasn't of nobility. Uh, She wasn't important enough to be called a wife. So he hardly ever saw the concubines. His wives were more important. They would come out and feast. So how many does that make up here? Total? Thousand. That's crazy. (laughs) Can I get an amen from the men in the room, the married men in the room? A thousand. He has a thousand, and, the, and pretty much, you know, we don't know all of them. Most of them, uh, at least the official wives, seem to be foreign women who worship other gods. They would have lived on the palace grounds, yeah. Kind of like what we think of as a Muslim harem. They would have had their own quarters and their own rooms, concubines to this section, and now the princess of Egypt had her own house. She was that important. He had a house built just for her. But yeah, the idea of a wife living in the same rooms with him, probably not. No. Um, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So there's a lot in that verse right there in verse 4. 
It doesn't say that he completely turned away from God, but it does say he turned he turned to these these false gods, these idols. And he did not serve the Lord. He was not fully devoted like his father David had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. So Ashtaroth was the female goddess, the main god in that ancient world, ancient Near East. And Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. This is the second time it's been said here. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is in the east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. This is one of those gods they would burn their kids to. This is the statue, the big bronze statue. They, they would build a fire under the hands and put the babies up there, sacrifice their children. That's what they're going to do in Israel after this. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to their gods. So, yeah, hey, I'm married to this woman. I've, you know, I've either made an alliance with her nation or married her for some political reason. I love all these wives, he says. I don't know how that's possible for him to, to love that many wives, but he said he did, and, and he's going to make them happy. You want to make your wife happy, right? So he lets each one build her own special place of worship. It's no big deal, right? I mean, she's just going to go up there. I don't have to go with her. She's just going to go up there, and then she's going to worship her God the way she wants. We're all about that, right? We, we got to have some, uh, especially in today's world, we got to have, you know, plurality of religions. Well, what's the problem with that? He's not being a very good spiritual head, yeah? And it's not going to be long before she says, hey, why don't you come with me? I, I know you worship your God in the temple, but just come along and see what we do. Come see what my priests do up on the mountain at our altar. You can just come for a learning experience. You know, oh, well, now that you're here four or five times, why don't you participate in the sacrifice? Why don't we do this ritual? And so he just gets wrapped up into that. Then what's going to happen in the next generation? Hey, Solomon used to go up to the, it's not that big a deal. Solomon used to go up there. I mean, it's not that big a deal. We can go worship one day at the Roman Catholic Church next day at the Bible church, and we'll go the next day to the Mormon church. It's all one big church, right? It's no big deal. Can't we just coexist, right? That's kind of, you can see today that thinking, well, even more so back then. I mean, this is the king of Israel as an example. They're going to follow him. The nation will, hey, our father Solomon did it. So every king after that will do it. And, and every king just about all the bad kings that we had listed will follow Solomon. He's the most powerful, the wisest guy. I mean, if he's the wisest man who ever lived, I'm going to do like Solomon. It's not that big a deal. And then the people say, hey, our king is doing that. We'll do that too. So he led the nation astray. And Molech, they have a, uh, I heard that, I saw a news article where people are building statues of these ancient idols now, life-size big, huge bronze statues. And they're just doing it, they're just calling it art. Right? It's just art. Just want to see what these statues look like. So they go through the records and descriptions of them and the ancient writings. And then they'll build this bronze statue. And the Vatican has allowed them to put one in front of the Colosseum. Molech is in front of the Colosseum in Rome. If you go there now for so many months out of the year, we go in one of the doors and there's a huge statue of Molech with all of his stuff and He's got his hands out, which is where they used to put the, the children that they would sacrifice. 
So maybe we're returning to these pagan ways in our world, or at least in the Western world. Not maybe, I guess we really are, aren't we? All right, so what's going to happen? Verse 9, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away. God's just going to overlook it, right? Because he overlooked, uh, what did Frank recently preach on? The strange fire? Nadab and Abihu, he overlooked that, right? He didn't. Solomon's a nice guy. He's the wisest man. He loves the Lord at some time in his life anyway. God's going to overlook it. No, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Well, every word counts in Scripture, and that's, that's important. It's not like God appears to everybody. And he appeared to Solomon twice. And Solomon, st- Solomon actually saw, I think, the pre-incarnate Christ, but he saw a vision of the Lord. And God talked to him and had commanded him concerning this thing. He actually had warned him and said, don't do it, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So your kingdom, as great as it is, is going to be divided, but for the sake of David who loved me with all his heart and the promises I gave to David, I'm not going to do it in your days. I'll do it in the next generation. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant. That's going to be Judah. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So one tribe, Judah, and Benjamin's pretty much going to be absorbed into that. Uh, it surrounds Jerusalem. That area will still be ruled over by a descendant of David. All the rest are going to split off. So God raises up adversaries right away to Solomon's reign. And things do not go well for Solomon. He continues to turn away from the Lord. By the time we get to the end, he's uh, it's his death here, the end of chapter 11. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and what he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? That's a history book we don't have. Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. That's pretty good for an ancient king. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Now, Rehoboam's interesting, prideful, little spoiled brat. And uh, he thinks he's something special. Chapter 12, let's just move right into that. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So that's the place that the temple used to be, or the, the tabernacle was before they built, uh, built it in Jerusalem. So kings are, kings are anointed there. Verse 2, now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt. So Jeroboam is a man that God said, one day you're going to rule over the northern tribes. And the word got out that this prophecy was, was being spoken. Jeroboam runs to Egypt. Now he hears that Solomon's dead. He was living in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Solomon's son, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us 
and we will serve you. And he said to them, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. So they they were a little tired of Solomon. Where did all this money come from? It came from the people. He taxed them. He took their sons and put them into his army. He had so many thousand chariots. He had all these watchtowers spread out all over the country. Um, and he taxed them hard. And they just want a little reprieve. And they know Rehoboam's not as strong as his, his father. So, hey, give us a little help. So what does he do? He goes and consults with the elders who served his father. And they, he says, how do you counsel me? Then they spoke to him saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, I will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servant forever. So the elders said what? Do what they said. Lighten their taxes and they will love you and the kingdom will be happy. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and he consulted with young men who grew up with him and served him. You know, I'm going to go ask my friends first. The young men, the yes men, those spoiled brats that grew up with me, and the, the nobles, you know, the, the wealthy people. I'm going to ask them what they think. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me? In verse 10, the young men who grew up with him spoke this, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us. So that's what they wanted. But you shall speak to them. This is what his friend says. My little fingers thicker than my father's loins. How's that going to go over? Yeah, this is a euphemism for what you think it is. And I'm so important, my little finger is bigger than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. You think it was bad that my, my father took your sons and and made them his, you know, servants. He wasn't supposed to make them slaves, but he could, he could draft them into service. So Solomon could, the Israelites. And he said, you think that's bad? I'm going to discipline you with scorpion. This is going to be way worse. I'm so important. This is what his friends tell him to do. What do you think he's going to do? That's, what the, that's what he's going to tell him. He doesn't listen to the old men who gave him good wisdom. He goes and tells them that, you think they're going to be happy? No. So he tells them in verse 14, And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. This all happened that the Lord might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So that's the prophet who went to Jeroboam and said, You're going to rule as king. So now the kingdom's divided. Verse 16, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have with David? Why do we care about David's house? We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. So now they're just going to divide along tribal lines. You know what? We never had an allegiance really to David anyway. We're going back to our tribal lines. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. As far as the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. And then Jeroboam becomes the king of the north. And then Jeroboam built, in verse 25, he built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built other cities. He said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. They're going to go back and join with Rehoboam. I can't let this happen. 
if this people go up to the temple every year, like they have to do according to God's law, they're going to look around. They're going to say, why don't we just live here? Why don't we just rejoin David's line? Why don't we just unite the kingdom? Can't have that. Verse 28, so the king consulted and he made two golden calves and he said to them, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel. What does that point back to? In, in Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain. He's gone too long. Aaron, the people ask Aaron to make something for them to worship. He makes a golden calf and he says, Behold your God. So you don't say it's another God. You say, it's really your God. This is, this is what he wants me to show you. He looks like this calf here. Worship him. This is your God, O Israel, that bought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made the houses on high places. And he made priests from among all the people. So if we go back to this map here. Here it shows you where these altars were. Right there and right there. So he put one up in the very top there in the north and one in the south. Made sure that people did not need to go to Jerusalem. Let's just go worship at these altars and that's just good enough. God doesn't mind, you know. He made me king. He's the one who told me I was going to be king through his prophet. So you, you guys can just stay in our kingdom, in northern kingdom, in Israel, and everything will be fine. Just do your sacrifices there. Well, they were committing idolatry. And it's only going to get worse with each generation. Why not mix a few of the other gods in? I mean, if we're already worshiping the golden calf, what's wrong with a, a golden fish and a, and, a, and a golden this and a golden that? All right, let's move along here. Elijah becomes a prophet, prophet of God. There's a lot of prophets in First and Second Kings. We don't have time to look at all of them, but anytime there's bad stuff happening to God's people in the Old Testament, he raises up prophets. He wants to speak to them. And prophets, their main job is to proclaim the message of God, God's actual words. And in the Old Testament, the main job of a prophet is to call them back to the original covenant that they had made with God, the Mosaic Covenant, and tell them to repent. Repent or be destroyed. Repent or be destroyed. So that's Elijah. Uh, he has this Mount Carmel where he stands off against the, the priests of Baal, the prophets of Baal. Then he has to run away because everybody wants to kill him, including Jezebel and Ahab. Ahab's a, a weak king who marries uh, Jezebel, she's actually a priestess of her father who's seen as a god in uh, Sidon. And they even steal this guy's vineyard, Naboth. They kill him. She, she conspires to kill him just to give her husband what he wants. Key passages. Let's look at uh, 1 Kings 13, 2. Let's start in verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel. So that's a prophet. He's going to the north, the kingdom of Israel, by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. So false worship's going on. Jeroboam's got his, his false worship altar set up. The prophet cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, 
a son shall be born to the house of David. So he's going to be born in the south, Josiah by name. So he's going to be a, a king named Josiah. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burnt incense on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. So it's a false altar. It's a false place of worship. Prophet runs up there and lays down on it when the, when the king up there is about to do his business. And he says, here's the prophecy from God. One day there's going to be a king. He's going to come up here from the south. And he's going to gather all these false priests. And he's going to burn them on the altar. Second Kings 23. It happens. Josiah, he's, he's after God's own heart. The, the main problem with the kings, it'll say over and over in First and Second Kings, they did not take away the high places. They did not take away the high places. But Josiah, he, he does his best. And so in 23, 2 Kings 23, 15, furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel, same one we just read about in First Kings, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place, he broke down. Then he demolished its stones. It's not enough to tear it down. He broke up all the stones. Then he ground them into dust. Then he burned the Asherah. These are the poles that they would have to worship Asherah. They were, they were trees chopped down into poles. Now when Josiah turned, so the same name that we heard was going to come. His name's Josiah. He saw the graves that were on the mountain. And he sent and he took the bones from the graves and burned them. These are all the high priests of the north, the false priests. They had been buried around the, the place of worship up there. Get them bones out of the ground and put them on the altar. We're going to burn them. And he defiled that altar according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. That's the prophet back in 1 Kings 13. Then he said, what is this monument that I see? I notice over here there's this monument with these tombs. And the men of the city said to him, It is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. It's that prophet's grave. So Josiah said, Leave him alone. Don't get his bones out. No one disturb him. So they left his bones undisturbed. And 19, Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Wow. Um, 22, 13 through 14, we'll pick up there next week. This is another deceiving spirit that God sends. The Lord sends a deceiving spirit who works through the false prophets and it misleads uh, the northern kings, particularly Ahab. Now we know not God doing it. God's permitting it. Satan's doing it. But God gives permission is the idea. So we'll pick up there next week. We'll talk real quickly about key people. And then we'll get into the selective interpretive issues. And then move into 2 Kings. Lord, I do pray that we have learned something of 1 Kings today. Especially the fact that we have to watch ourselves. We have to guard ourselves. We have to stand fast. Make sure that we don't fall into sin. That we don't fall into idolatry looking and worshiping other things. If the wisest man in the world, blessed with your wisdom, can fall into this kind of sin, how easy it would it be for us, Lord, to fall into sin. So help us learn the lesson, all of these lessons in the Old Testament. Keep ourselves pure and follow our Lord, our King, 
Jesus Christ, who is perfectly wise. In his name we ask this. Amen.